Six days ago, the most raucous campaign cycle in recent memory came to an end as Donald Trump was elected President of the United States. Trump's victory is partially due to the Democratic Party's collapse in reliably blue states like Michigan and Wisconsin, and Trump also outperformed expectations with minorities and women voters. He received a higher percentage of the women vote than Romney did, tripled Romney's showing with African Americans, and got 1% more of the Hispanic vote as well. And all this is great news for the country and the Republican Party, and disastrous news for the DNC. The entire Clinton campaign was based on calling Trump and his voters racist, sexist, bigots, deplorables, and they didn't really take the time to present a positive vision for the country. As it turns out, if all you can do is call your opponent a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe ad nauseum, people will get sick of it and think you're deflecting from the actual issues, which is exactly what brought down Hillary Clinton. If the Democratic Party continues to move left, even their increasingly favorable demographics won't help them to win elections. Working-class white people are still an important demographic, and white people are still the minority in the country. The DNC, if it chooses to keep aligning itself with people and movements that target white men as society's biggest problem, they better get used to losing elections big league. The person who put this best might actually be Senator and former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Today, in a tweet, he wrote, quote, I come from the white working class, and I'm deeply humiliated to see that, that the Democratic Party cannot talk to the people where I came from. End quote. I'm James Alsop, and this is Campus Report. Well, welcome back, and we are back in the first edition since the end of the campaign cycle, and we have a lot to get to today, a lot to get to that took place in the past week and a half or, or week or so. Obviously, the results of the presidential election are in. Donald Trump has won, which is a, a great relief to many people, um, but also to many of these uh, these anti-Trump protesters. It's a great cause of concern and consternation. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But first, I want to begin with something that we talked about in the intro, and that is the future of the Democratic Party. Now, people were saying before the election was over that the Republican Party was in was in conflict, and it was... It was on the verge of collapse, and that was the big narrative throughout really the entire presidential cycle was that the Republicans were about to collapse, and if the part, if uh, Donald Trump had lost, that might have been true. If Trump had, had gone down in flames and gotten blown out 300 electoral votes, you know, to, to 230 or whatever, then there would have been a lot of cause for concern, and there would have been a lot of infighting and, and wrestling for power within the RNC, but that didn't happen. And, and Trump is the victor, and so the Republican Party, all, a lot of those wounds can be can be smoothed over, right? And they can be ignored because your party won. And that's, you know, for better or for worse, the way this often works is that if you, if you win, the divisions that keep the party apart and those ideological separations don't matter so much because you just want to focus on governing. And then when you lose, that's when you tear the party down and you rebuild. And so those divisions within the Republican Party are still going to be there. And Trump is making a play to um, compensate for those and to and to make things work within the party. And you could see that by his pick of, of Rince Priebus to be his chief of staff and his statements that he's made to the media since winning the election, soften, softening, it appears, on Obamacare, softening, it appears, on, on immigration to an extent. Uh, we'll get into that. Uh, in more detail later on, on looking at the idea of whether or not he's, Trump is going back on his promises, which is something that the media, now that they've lost, now that the media has been absolutely shown to be non-credible, they're coming out and trying to say, oh, well, you know, he played you, he, he suckered you all that voted for Trump. And I don't think there's a lot of truth to that, but we'll get to that later in the show. But the party 
unquestionably, with infighting and, and division going on internally right now, is the Democratic Party. It's the DNC. It is an absolute free-for-all inside the DNC right now because they made a conscious decision this election cycle, and I, I believe it was a conscious decision, to not focus on the issues. They didn't focus on the issues very much, if really at all. You know, They didn't really make a, a compelling case Okay, compelling argument to vote Democratic other than, yeah, Trump's a racist, don't vote for him. And when you base your entire case upon, you know, somebody being a bad guy, if that that character attack falls apart, then you have nothing, you're left with nothing. And I, this is something I was saying before the election was over, is I, I felt like Trump voter turnout would be higher than the polls indicate because Trump voters had a, a positive motivation to go to the polls. People who were voting for Trump were positively motivated um, to cast their ballot for him because they liked his ideas for shaping the country. They liked his ideas of fixing trade and his policy ideas. Whereas Clinton voters, most of them that you talked to were just motivated by stopping Trump. A lot of people, and this is reflected in the, the polling data about why people supported Hillary, a ton of Hillary's voters said, yeah, we don't really like her. Uh, her policies are okay, but we just want to stop Trump. And when it comes down to election day, you're going to have a lot harder time motivating somebody and getting him actually out to the polls, but just saying, "Hey, don't you know? Don't don't forget how much you hate Trump. Come out and vote." That's not going to be as, as strong of a motivation to people as saying, "Hey, here's your chance to fix the country. Come out and vote for your guy." And so that led to a lot higher turnout for Trump, in my opinion. But the Democrats, they made a play this election cycle um, in in their messaging, in their strategy. And who they targeted to get to vote, that was overlooking to a large extent of white working class men. If you look at Hillary Clinton's ad campaigns, all of Hillary Clinton's ad campaigns, I, I don't believe I saw a single one that was policy focused. The strategy that the Clinton campaign used was they they get somebody you know, sitting in a chair in a in a dark lit room holding a picture of somebody say oh this is my disabled son and trump said mean things about disabled people don't vote for trump vote for hillary and they would do that with women they would do it with disabled they would do it with with minorities and and all of it that's that's all they they could advertise on was oh trump is so mean you can't vote for trump eh, you know people that motivates some people, and that's convinc convincing to some people, but a lot of people don't fall for that. A lot of people say, okay, yeah, he's done bad things, or he said bad things, but I'll put that aside and cast my vote for him anyways because I like his policy ideas. You know, He may have said a couple mean things about Rosie O'Donnell, but he wants to kick the illegals out, and I like that, so I'm going to vote for Trump anyways. And Hillary Clinton's campaign didn't really account for that. They didn't expect people to to see through the advertising campaign. So that's why they failed. That, that's, that's a lot of why they failed. But they didn't reach out to those working class white people. And this is something, it, it's not only not reaching out. You know, Hillary Clinton, I don't believe, made a single stop in Wisconsin, right? Big mistake, obviously, as she lost a state, a state that's been a, a blue stronghold for a long time. She didn't campaign in Wisconsin, barely campaigned in Michigan, and she lost both states as a result. But the DNC has been gradually becoming infiltrated and, and mainstream democratic thought has been infiltrated by people who are pretty expressly anti-white, anti-white male. And this is something that you, you notice there's really no alt-left. 
or at least the the party doesn't draw a separation between the the mainstream Democrats and then the far left. They're kind of all rolled into one. Whereas the Republican Party, there's a clear distinction between somebody like Paul Ryan and then a little bit to the right, somebody like Rush Limbaugh and then some, and further to the right, you know, Ann Coulter, for example. You could see the clear divisions there. For the Democrats, they don't have that, you know. Um, the Democrat, the commentators who go on TV for the Democrats, most of them are are, are very far left. I mean, people like Van Jones represent the Democrats on TV for God's sake. Like, he's a very very far left guy. And Van Jones, in the in the wake of Trump winning, said that this is a white lash, right? Oh, it's a white lash. It's it's white people, you know, lashing out at minorities. Well, you know, maybe it's not Van. You know, maybe it's not a, a racially motivated thing, like the left keeps trying to tell people it is. And maybe people aren't racist. You know, this is something Michael Moore pointed out. Because what's happening now is is the Democrats, they're, they're spinning this, I believe, the wrong way. The Democrats are spinning down on the racially divisive narrative. And this is not all Democrats. That's, that's the frustrating thing. I have a lot of friends who are, are Democrats, who are good people, who see what's happening to their party. And they say, this is, you know, this is not what I want my party to be, right? These are, are JFK Democrats. They're Jim Webb Democrats who are looking on at what's happening to mainstream left uh, main, the mainstream Democratic Party and they know that it's a it's a kamikaze mission they know it's it's suicide for the party to keep going so far far left and to transition into this this anti-white anti-male party but there's really nothing they can do to stop it because if they stand up to the the radical left they're afraid of being called you know a sexist or a racist or whatever so people like Van Jones go on TV and say oh Trump's victory is a white lash uh, they imply that it's racist. They imply these people are racist for voting for Trump. But, you know, think back to 2008 and 2012. Michigan and, and Wisconsin both voted for Obama twice. So do they suddenly get the racist? <laughs> these people who voted for a black man twice are racist against a white woman, so they voted for Trump? It doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make sense. And the, the narrative doesn't make sense that the Democrats are trying to push, but they're doubling down anyways. They're, they're absolutely doubling down. And there's a good example of that that's posted to the Huffington Post where um, the founder of the American Spectator, um, Emmett Tyrell Jr., and a Nigerian feminist author, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, are having a debate about Donald Trump on, on a BBC News night here. Um, and, you know, Emmett Tyrell is, is saying that it's not a question of racism. Racism didn't help Trump win. But then, of course, the feminist author, who is, of course, a black woman, comes out and says, oh, well, you can't you can't talk about racism because you're a white man. You're a white man. You can't have an opinion on this. And the guy says, hey, you know what the, what the heck? Like, I can have an opinion on this, too. Um, just because of your status as a minority, you don't get to define and determine who is able to speak about racism, who is able to have an opinion on this stuff. But unfortunately for the left, this is what is becoming their prevailing thought. Right, they are becoming a, a party that really has no. The Democratic Party is becoming a party that has no interest in communicating with white people. They they talk down to white people. They they say the white people are are incapable and not allowed of participating in these discussions. They cited. I think a very clear indicator of this is when they had on stage at the DNC the quote mothers of the movement. And if you don't know who the mothers of the movement are, they are the mothers of people like Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin who were justifiably killed in the act of committing crimes, but 
because they're they're young black men, the left believes, oh, they must have been they were they were good boys who didn't do anything. They were, <laughs> you know, they had to be innocent. And it was the the racist white police keeping them down, the racist white man keeping them down. And so the DNC has them on stage at the, at the convention. You know, most Americans see that. Most Americans, white or black, I mean, as an aggregate, most blacks see Trayvon and, and Michael Brown as innocent. But um, the majority of Americans see that and th- they think, wait, you know, these are people who, they're not victims. They were committing crimes when they were justifiably killed by the police. And race wasn't an issue. And whether they were killed or not, the fact that they were trying to to murder people was was the issue. Michael Brown was killed trying to take a cop's gun and shoot him, and Trayvon Martin was beating George Zimmerman's head in the pavement. And then the DNC goes and lionizes their moms as some sort of uh, spokespeople against racist whitey. You know, most people see that and they think, hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is not this is not something that we should be standing for in our country. And the Democrats lost because of that, partially because of that, this election cycle. But they're doubling down. And I think there's going to be a real fight in the DNC between this far left, this very far left, uh, you know, militant, anti-white, anti-man, uh, radical feminism, and JFK, regular Democrats. And I would honestly like at this point to seek a sort of three-way realignment because I think these JFK Democrats have a lot in common with people like Paul Ryan. They, they're, you know, <laughs> similar in tone. And just on policy, you just you just look at their policy. Somebody like I, I would say Hillary Clinton, but somebody like Jim Webb, you know, probably Lincoln Chafee or Martin O'Malley, they have more in common with Marco Rubio than they do with somebody like Keith Ellison, who's running for the chair of the DNC. They have more in common on policy than than Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. So those people could get along really well. They would have some disagreements about about particulars of policy but I think they would all they would all fit really well in a party together where and then you would have the the more right wing represented by Donald Trump and and people like that Ann Coulter would be another example um, somebody who would be on the right wing Sean Hannity people with that kind of political thought Jeff Sessions if you want to look at politicians with that identity and then I think even the libertarians would fit in there too like uh, Rand Paul not 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 Lion Ted but but I think Rand Paul could fit in there as well. And then on the far left, you'd have people like, you know, Chimun Ngozi and and Lacey Green and a lot of these young Antifa types who just want to get out and burn the whole system down. And they hate white men and they hate their dads and they didn't have dads and all this stuff. And so, you know, all, all those people who are just kind of really out of touch with reality could have their own party. I think you'd have a lot more meaningful political discussion then because the... The on the right, you wouldn't have the infighting between Paul Ryan, who wants to let more illegals in the country and wants totally open borders, and was caught in the WikiLeaks with Hillary Clinton's campaign negotiating deals for his relatives to be on the Supreme Court. If people like that would be in a party with people who are more moderate Democrats, they would get along really well. And the people who are on the far left wouldn't have to be pandering, or wouldn't sorry, the people who are on the moderate left wouldn't have to be pandering to the people on the far left and making concessions about. Black Lives Matter when they really have no interest in Black Lives Matter because they know it's a thug terrorist organization. I think that would make a lot of people happy to have that three-way realignment, but I don't know if it'll ever if if it, if it will ever materialize. Now, if the the left continues to move down this path of doubling down, of protesting a free and fair election, 
they're going to be in for a lot of trouble. 86%, 86% of people in the United States, when polled by, I believe this was Pew, it could have been Gallup, they were polled and they said that they accept Donald Trump as the rightful president of the United States, of the right, as the rightful president-elect, and they are okay with the results. They may have not liked it, they, may, they definitely didn't vote for him, but they accept the results of the election because it was a fair democratic election that was that was conducted with with uh, you know no Trump didn't commit any fraud you know there's still questions about whether the Clinton campaign committed fraud but Trump won at fair and square and 86% of people in America agree with that so for these really crybabies on the on the far left to come out and say oh we need Hillary we need Hillary to come and 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 save us from ourselves People are looking at that and thinking, you know, what the heck? What's what's going on with these people? Because that's not who we voted for. You know, we didn't vote for Hillary. Yeah, the electoral college, you may not like it, but that's how we do elections in this country. That's how we do presidential elections in this country. We have a, an electoral college. It's the way we've always had it. We've had, you know, four cases in the past in history of people winning the popular vote but losing the electoral college. Sorry, that's just the way it works. And Hillary knew the rules going into it. Hillary's been in government longer than Trump has. She should know the rules going into the into the election. And so the the accelerationism on the far left, where they, they are out protesting the results of the election, that is without a doubt hurting them. That is without a doubt hurting them among moderates and among moderate Democrats who say, this is not my party anymore. I can't vote for these people anymore. The accelerationism of the anti-white, anti-white male rhetoric, that is not going to help them at all, especially in states that you need to win, like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and, and Minnesota, maybe even even flipping next time uh, for Trump. We'll see what happens with that, but they're definitely not doing themselves any favors. So what the DNC needs to do, in my opinion, if they want to win in 2020, they need to nominate somebody like, I'm not saying this person exactly, but they need to nominate a Tim Kaine or a Jim Webb or even a Martin O'Malley. Any one of those three candidates would fare better against Donald Trump than Tulsi Gabbard or Keith Ellison or any one of these these affirmative action hires they want to make because it's it's not going to work out for them. They they can't keep falling on this this idea that oh if we just if we gin up enough support among among uh, you know ethnic minorities and women we'll win. You know, they need to have somebody who's actually competent. They need to have, and this is not to say that, that you know, Tulsi Gabbard couldn't actually be competent or that, that uh, minority couldn't actually be competent. Sure, they could. They could, but but they can't campaign on the social justice platform, right? They can't campaign on the, on the look at how evil racist white men are platform because they won't win. They won't, I mean, maybe in 2032 or in 2034 when the demographics are more favorable, a long ways down the road, maybe they could do better then. But as of now, that's not going to be a winning platform for them. It's it's just not going to be. So that's what they have to do if they want to win. They have to return to their moderate base because I do believe the, the base of the Democratic Party. I don't think a lot of these far-left people are really Democrats. I think a lot of them are, are just angry young people and agitators. But most Democrats, and I've, look, I've talked to Democrats who are older, to Democrats who are younger, and they are all saying the same thing. They're all saying, and they won't say it publicly because they, they can't, but they they know that the DNC is in for quite a bit of trouble if they don't pick somebody who is who is not a radical. 
And Hillary Clinton isn't necessarily a radical either, but she just tried to use radical, she tried to gin up support among people who are radical to get her elected. And obviously we, we know how that turned out. So that is, that is what's going on with the DNC. It's kind of a mess. Um, hopefully for their sake they can fix it. But for the Republicans, you know, maybe they have a vested interest in, in promoting that radical left, you know, tacitly. You know, saying, hey, yeah, you know, you guys keep rioting. See what happens. Um, because it'll be good news electorally for the Republicans. I, I think it's bad for the country, so I don't think the Republicans should do it. But I think that in terms of the effect it has on the electorate, it definitely moves people further to the right and out of the, the Democratic Party camp. Speaking of moving to the right, uh, Donald Trump announced his chief of staff and his senior advisor on uh, what must have been Sunday. Yeah, it was a Sunday afternoon. He had, he announced who he was picking for a chief of staff and senior advisor. Rince Priebus, current RNC chair, was picked to be his chief of staff. And then Steve Bannon of Breitbart was picked to be his um, senior advisor and senior counsel. And so I, I have a mixed reaction to this news. I, I have a mixed reaction to Priebus and Bannon. And it, it falls along the lines of, of, liking, Rince, of uh, liking Steve Bannon and not really being exuberantly confident in Rince Priebus. I know Steve Bannon from what he does. I like Steve Bannon. I love what he's done with Breitbart. He's given an outlet to what used to be things that would be unspeakable. You know, he used to not be allowed to say a lot of what is said on Breitbart, but a lot of people thought it, and now it's, it has a platform on the on the internet, which is nice. I like what he's done with Breitbart. I, I like what he did with the Trump campaign. He was, of course, the Trump campaign CEO. I think he made a lot of good decisions. And he really helped Trump, along with Kellyanne Conway, get over the edge and actually win the election. And I think he's a smart guy. I think he's. this is something that people who know him personally have said. Uh, ben Shapiro has called him a smarter version of Trump. Ben Shapiro hates Steve Bannon. But if, if, if Shapiro thinks that highly of him and of, highly of his abilities anyways, that has to be good news for people who want to see Trump win. So Steve Bannon picked for senior counsel, senior advisor, Rince Priebus, um, I'm not as optimistic on. I think that Priebus is definitely, he's definitely part of the swamp, right? He's definitely not somebody who is who is going to be um, in great support of draining the swamp. On the other hand, at the same time, he is somebody who has access to all of these politicians. He's somebody who has access to everybody in the Republican establishment. He knows how to communicate with them. He has a working relationship with them. And so insofar as advocating Trump's agenda goes, I think he may be helpful. I think he may be a useful tool, and he may be another one of these, and he may be a peace offering, you know, to the um, to the Republican establishment. He may be a sign, picking previous may be a sign that Trump acknowledges he needs to work with them. He needs to, to communicate, and because he can't do everything through executive order. He needs to get things through Congress. He needs to get th things through the Senate. He needs to be somebody who can bring a lot of the Republicans who hate him together with the Republicans who like him, together with moderate Democrats, to get his agenda passed. And if Priebus can be useful in doing so, then I think he's a good pick. But of course, we have to wait and see. We have to wait and see how long he even lasts as chief of staff. I've, I've heard it talked about, Alex Jones mentioned this morning, that Priebus may be a temporary chief of staff. He may be in for six months or so uh, to help Trump build that relationship with the House and Senate, and then he may be out again. We'll have to wait and see. 
I'm not sure if that's something that Trump would do, I, that maybe firing Priebus would make enemies. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see until he takes office. There's a lot of conjecture and a lot of speculation going on with Trump uh, before he's even taken office, which I think is is pretty interesting. And that brings us to the next point, where the media right now is is very actively coming out and saying, you know, Trump Trump played his supporters. He's not actually going to follow through on what he wants to do. He's not he's not going to deport the illegals. He's not going to build the wall. He's not going to repeal Obamacare. He played everybody, and this is a media narrative that is very easily to easy to disprove easy easily disproven because he hasn't done anything yet trump hasn't he's not even president yet and people are already saying oh he's a big disappointment if he picks john bolton for secretary of state yeah i'll i'll say that's disappointing but he hasn't done that yet so in his picks he's made so far he's been he's been you know 50-50 which i think is is what we can ask for really um, from a, from a president-elect. And we haven't even seen those picks in action yet, so we don't know how they're going to pan out. But one of the areas where the media is saying that Trump betrayed people is Obamacare, where he said that he likes the major pillars of Obamacare. Well, that's what the majority of Americans say, too. There was recent polling conducted where they looked at each of the individual tenets of Obamacare, and they separated them out. And they pulled people on them individually. And the two tenets that people liked, you know, 70% of Americans liked, were being able to stay, or for young people being able to stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26, and then for insurance companies to be required to accept people with pre-existing conditions. Now, personally, I don't like the idea of of pre-existing conditions. I I think that defeats the entire purpose of getting insurance. But 70% of Americans like that. And so if Trump were to come out and say, oh, we just have to get rid of everything, we have to get rid of everything. Well, that would be a very bad political move for him, and he would waste a lot of his political capital that he has coming in. There's an idea in politics of an electoral mandate, that when a president is elected or a new Congress is elected, they have a mandate from the people to get X, Y, and Z done, to accomplish their main promises they made to the people. Trump's promises to the people, primarily, you can, you can separate them into three categories. The three major things that people resonate with, fixing trade, and not allowing TPP to pass. TPP looks dead at this point. Um, Trump still wants to renegotiate NAFTA and renegotiate some of the other deals that we have, but he's off to, I mean, he didn't even do anything and and trade is off to a good start. Number two is Obamacare. He has said repeatedly we're going to repeal or replace Obamacare. Now he's kind of mincing his words a little bit, which is maybe cause for concern where he's saying either we're going to amend it or repeal and replace it. He promised to repeal and replace it. So hopefully He's, he's doing that to as a, as a strategic move to get the Democrats off his back to to give him, let to make them give him a chance right so he's not coming in as this, as this crusader who immediately turns the establishments of both parties against him and makes it impossible for him to get anything done because you have to realize I mean he he's now in politics he's now going to be the president he's going to have to work with the establishments and that's something that is going to be new for him because he campaigned on on draining the swamp but on taking on the establishment so you know people are going to be concerned obviously when he says things like oh we need to work with the establishment people are going to be concerned by that but i think we have to wait and see how he governs governs sorry to wait and see how he governs to really know if he's serious about 
draining the swamp and about taking on the establishment and really accomplishing all of the goals that he promised he would he would set out to accomplish. I For now, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He hasn't taken office yet. I like what he said in his campaign, primarily most of it. I like most of what he promised. So I think we should give him a chance. We should wait and see before jumping on this. this it's this counter-narrative that's coming around right now that, oh, he's disappointment. He's already a neocon. He's a, biggest, he, a big establishment hack. He's a big disappointment. Let's wait and see how he actually governs um, before making that call. All right. On to our final topic now. Um, we're going to be doing a segment every Monday and Thursday when we do this show on Trump's first 100 days. And these are each one of these is going to be a policy idea that I believe Trump should or needs to um, grab, grab onto and to implement in his first 100 days in office. Now, the whole first 100 days thing is kind of hokey, right? Um, you can't really get that much done in your first 100 days because you, you're still building relationships with your legislative branch and you're still getting um, getting used to the office of president and you're still learning how to actually do the job. And so I, I think the first 100 days thing is a little bit overblown, but everybody else is doing it. We might as well do it. Um, and even if he doesn't pursue these things in the first 100 days, I think these are things that he should pursue throughout his presidency. So the first policy proposal that I believe President Trump should implement as president is an immediate reversal of DACA and DAPA. DACA and DAPA are the deferred action for for children of uh, you know undocumented immigrants. I, I, I'm forgetting the exact acronym for it now, but essentially what DACA and DAPA do is they protect they protect the children of illegal immigrants who came to the country illegally, and they they give them protections and they let them stay in university and things like that. Um, this is you know referred to they're referred to as dreamers, right? The people protected by this. This needs to be immediately repealed. Every illegal immigrant who goes to an American university is taking the spot of an American citizen who could be going to that university, or illegal immigrant even, illegal resident even. But allowing illegal immigrants into the American university system is doing a great disservice to the children and the parents of the children who have been born in this country or who have legally entered this country and have worked very hard throughout their high school and college career, or their high school career, to get into university and then they can't because that spot is taken by an illegal immigrant. It needs to be immediately ended. Immediately ended. We need to drain drain the swamp of American universities and get the illegal immigrants out of American universities. Now, this will be this will be great for American universities. This will be great for Americans because we will start to see more Americans, more US citizens going to college. Or if we don't see that, we can start to reduce the size of university admittance, which I believe would be a good thing when done in conjunction with trade schools. You know, we need to, we need to have trade opportunities and, um, you know, vocational and technical schools available, but we need to get the illegal immigrants out of American universities to either make space for American students or to reduce the burden and the cost to the American taxpayer. Both of these things need to be accomplished. And that can only be done by repealing DACA and DAPA, which are, of course, Obama's illegal executive orders. They're unconstitutional. And Trump should follow through on his promise to repeal Obama's illegal executive orders. And we need to start seeing deportation. You know, Trump has promised to deport the 2 to 3 million criminal aliens in the country, which is, again, a misnomer. And I am disappointed to see Trump using this, this leftist speak here because everybody who's here illegally is a criminal. 
Every single illegal immigrant or illegal resident of the country is a criminal. So to separate them between criminal aliens and non-criminal illegal aliens is a little bit of that of that leftist double double speak, because they're all criminals. So Trump has promised to re, um, remove the two to three million who have committed crimes in addition to being here illegally. But I think we need to be fully accelerationist on this. I, I think this is something where Trump needs to fulfill his original campaign promise of removing every illegal Im- immigrant from the country. Um, you know, we need to have a wall at the same time, but but we need to start now. We need to start as soon as Trump takes office, repealing the protections for illegal aliens and increasing funding for ICE, you know, spending much more money on immigration and customs enforcement. enforcement and you know, literally, you can literally go to any American university, and there's a club. They throw it in your face, right? They're not even ashamed of being here illegally. There are clubs for undocumented students, illegal aliens, on every, on not every, but on nearly every major American university campus. And they have events and parties where they brag about their illegal status, and they throw it in people's face. That's where you start. You repeal DACA and DAPA, and you send in your ICE squad to any one of these American schools, and there's there's your quota for the day. There's your quota because, you know, we need to be serious about enforcing the laws in this country. We need to either be a country of laws or to be a country of men, a country where where the law is is second to people's feelings and and what people want and what's politically expedient. We can't keep being politically expedient with the law. We need to enforce the law as it's written, as it was intended to be, and to remove physically remove you know every illegal alien from this country it'll be gradual of course you can't just wave a, a magic wand and get it done overnight but it needs to be done it needs to be done they're breaking the law they're violating the law they're taking spots from american students in these universities and it needs to stop it needs to come to an end and i believe that that trump as president has the power and he has the mandate he has the electoral mandate to get this done in a way that no other president in history has done has had you know uh, illegal immigration hasn't been an issue um, really until the, the 60s because we we didn't really care <laughs> until then. And the 60s is when we, we changed our immigration policy to, uh, to favor people from um, non-European countries from the, the previous policy, which favored people from European countries. So... Um, yeah, Trump has the power and, and the ability as president to get that done. I know Paul Ryan's going to fight him on that. Maybe Paul Ryan needs to be removed. Maybe Paul Ryan needs to be removed as speaker if he's going to fight Trump on, on deportation of illegal aliens. But I firmly believe that there should be a no illegal left behind policy with uh, President Trump and when it comes to immigration. And then we need to really return to consistency as a government and, and return to a, uh, a law enforcement culture where the law is enforced regardless of whether you're a student, whether you came here as a kid, doesn't matter. If you're here illegally, in the words of President Trump, you got to go back. Um, that's all we got for this week's edition of Campus Report, um, but we will be back on Thursday, so not even this week's edition, this this Monday edition, this return, this triumphant return um, to the podcasting sphere uh, for us here. But we will, we will be back again on Thursday talking about more. I'm sure there'll be more going on. I'm sure there'll be more drama with Trump's appointments. We'll talk a little bit probably about Secretary of State um, and who the candidates for Secretary of State are as of uh, as of Thursday, if he hasn't made his appointment already. So we'll talk about that on Thursday. We'll talk about the, the protests, if they continue, and the riots that are taking place against President-elect Trump. And I'm sure their, uh, <laughs> the election is over, but 
the generation of content for us to talk about here certainly isn't. They, they're certainly not going to leave us without content to talk about. And we will be back to talk about everything that goes on here on Campus Report next Thursday. See you then. Thank you.